Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Underserved, the podcast for the rest of the tech industry. I am happy to be joined today by Glenn Morgan, Practice Director of Agile NX. Glenn, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to, I'm going to rewind like to ancient history. Let's go like all the way back to England. Uh, you're from Brighton, right? Close to Brighton. Yeah, I grew up on the south coast of England. What's your first memory of technology? Like what got you kind of excited? So I had gotten involved in actually the cell phone industry in the UK in my late 20s. It took that long to dawn upon me that technology was probably the way to go. I was actually working in uh, in the transport industry for 10 years or so. And uh, so I went out and I bought myself a BBC computer uh, with a massive 128K of memory. Okay. So you were doing like business analysts type stuff over in England? Uh, so I had worked, uh, in the advertising industry and got some exposure to Apple computers. And, um, I was coming over to the U S for Macworld Expo and really just learning. So I, I was still involved in other career pursuits at that time, but was just really on this big learning exercise. And, uh, Again, I had this foolish notion when I first started that I wanted to learn everything. So I was learning about, you know, network protocols and all of this other stuff about the internet. And then again, realized that, okay, I need to start to specialize because it was even back then, it was just too much to, to comprehend. And then what kind of brought you to the United States? So, uh, as I mentioned, I, I was uh, coming over to Macworld Expo uh, two or three times a year to learn about the technology and then take it back to England and to start selling it over there. That's how I really got involved in the industry. And um, the permanent move came when on one of those trips I met my now ex-wife. Uh, but I moved here, obviously, to be with her and got married and all of that good stuff. And but I'm still here 25 years later. Can't get rid of me that easily. <laughs> you certainly got staying power. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a lot of a lot of people, you're our first guest, um, not originally from the United States. And a lot of people from the US don't know, like, well, how does that work if I want to go somewhere else and work? Well, you can go anywhere in the world pretty much with your US passport and spend 90 days. You're not allowed to work during that. You have to actually get a visa in order to work. So I imagine you had to go through that process and yeah, I, I did have a, a an advantage by coming in on a fiancé visa. Um, so once we were married, we, of course, had to go through the whole immigration interrogation. And that stuff is really true, what you see on TV. They literally put you in two different rooms and ask you all sorts of questions and then compare the answers to see if they actually match up. So Try and make sure it's not a marriage of convenience or something like yes, that. Yes, yes. Yeah, the fact that she was probably about five months pregnant by the time we actually got into that helped solidify the deal. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're in the U.S. Where do you where do you end up working? So when I first started here, I worked for a small uh, consulting company in Hingham, Mass. Who I can't even tell you the name of because I can't remember. But that was a relatively uh, short term gig, and then a friend of um, my then wife uh, worked at um, IDC and uh, was able to get me an interview with the company, ironically, that ran Macworld Expo. So I interviewed and, and got the position at, uh, at IDC, and I was there for 
probably about two and a half years. Okay. And were you doing like BA project management stuff? Uh, so the, it was, this division was basically in, uh, show management, trade show management. And I was kind of a jack of all trades, I guess, the IT guy for this small group of about 25 people. But what really fascinated me was the fact that at Macworld Expo, when people walked in to register, they had to do it on a dumb Unix terminal. And for creative people, that was probably the most awful experience that anyone could imagine. Just a kick in the teeth. Yes. So I, I got to thinking about how can we solve this problem and make it more of a creative and dynamic uh, registration process. So um, if, if you dig back into delves of history, you'll probably remember a product called Macromedia Director. So I learned how to use that, and I found somebody that was uh, able to do some custom programming. And I designed all of the animated interface uh, in Director and the programmer guy helped me do the, I guess, the intermediate software to convert the output out of what was put into the UI uh, so that we could send it to the Unix servers and they could then create the, the badge. But when we, when we put it uh, through the initial test in, uh, in Boston, we only had a bank of 15 Macs and probably about 40 terminals uh, of the regular uh, Unix screens. People were literally lining up to use the Macs, even though there was like a third of the Unix screens were open because uh, they wanted to see what was going on. And then we launched officially in San Francisco the following year with the all Mac registrations. So it was cool. That's cool. Uh, definitely putting a much friendlier face on than a Unix terminal. Exactly. So that, that's what excited me about it. Again, it's like, how do we, how do we get people engaged with using technology in a way that they're more used to doing that's more natural and and that was my first kind of real exposure to really horrible software for people that didn't generally use really horrible software so and then what got you into project management and getting interested in that uh so a process of evolution um i i left uh i IDC, and then went to work for a small company in Boston, which was probably a career mistake. Uh, so I got out of that and then started consulting um, like a, as a contractor, like I am now, and went to work for a company called American Tower, uh, which were in Boston. And that's where I really got more involved with actually taking on you know, the, the full scope of a project in terms of being responsible for its delivery and also uh, the UI design was also something that I was involved with. But they were growing very, very quickly and they just needed, again, somebody that could fill in needs as, you know, literally on a daily basis as, as things came up. And that experience really um, helped me to understand what I was good at. Um, again, you know, coming out of a place where I was a bit of a jack of all trades. Um, and really honing my analytical skills and somewhat creative vision as well, and being able to harness that and say, okay, this this is my niche. I've found out now what I'm really good at and what I enjoy doing, and I want to build upon that. As I came out of that, I like the project management side of things. I, I do enjoy that, but I, personally for me, the finding out the issues that 
businesses are struggling with and their bottlenecks and their workflows and then finding or designing software that's going to solve those problems. And when I say designing software, I'm looking at this from the user interface. So most of the work I do is writing user stories, and that's where I harness what is that interaction going to look like, how it's implemented and designed architecturally in the back end. I have a natural interest in that. But again, that's another whole scope of of work or an area that I'm not an expert in. I understand enough of it to be dangerous, but it's really to know enough to know what's feasible from a, from a user interaction point of view, but there's many ways to actually solve that problem, as you know, from a software perspective. Yep. Now, I imagine back in the day you were probably doing waterfall type stuff while you were at American Tower? Yep, very much so. Um, I, I was at American Tower for about a, a year, then moved on to a company called Razorfish, which was a lot of fun while it lasted. And then I came out of there and went into Fidelity, and they were very, very waterfall-oriented. Pages and pages and pages of requirements, documents, data mapping, tons and tons of work that was done up front before any developer got anywhere near to it. And it was like that in this, in uh, finance, banking, and uh, also in healthcare. Yeah, I would say that those are definitely three heavily regulated industries that also want to know from a budget perspective, how long is this going to take? How much is it going to cost? I need to hit it by X date and agile can be a challenge for them. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the regulatory factor is, is probably the biggest thing that impedes being agile because it's very hard to do an MVP of something where there's pages of government mandate that you have to meet. So from from terms of releasing to the end user, there's that's an inhibitor, but it doesn't necessarily stop you from still working in an agile way in order to get that unit of work that you can finally release. Now, when did you first get involved in learning agile and then practicing it yourself or with the organization you were working with? So that would Probably be, uh, let's see now, um, around the 2012 timeframe, so about six or seven years ago, uh, I was working with Blue Cross Blue Shield, and uh, we were implementing a Salesforce.com solution. You know, they were interested in exploring uh, agile uh, development practices, and this project was well suited to that because it was internal to their sales team. Um, and internal workflow. So it really didn't have the level of uh, government mandates that that other parts of the uh, healthcare industry are exposed to. So that was really the first project that that I worked on that was done in an agile manner. Okay. What do you think worked well there, and what were some of the challenges in implementing agile? The things that worked well was collaboration. So collaborating with the sales reps that were out on the road, understanding what their uh, needs were, understanding what the business needed in terms of the workflow, uh, because there were still checks and balances that had to take place. So these were things like people changing their benefit plans, companies changing their benefit plans, things like that, or, or new new companies coming on board, buying their health care through Blue Cross Blue Shield. So the collaboration factor, I felt, worked really, really well. The biggest challenges were distributed workforce. We had some remote developers 
So from doing this from the first time around, managing that was definitely a challenge. And I think the other real um, challenge was having management understand that you don't write all the requirements up front, that you start building and it's an evolutionary, uh, an incremental approach where if something doesn't look right, well, you can just change it and you can change it on the fly or if things change. Management had a really hard time dealing with that risk of not knowing when it was going to be done, completed, and what it was going to cost to get there, which is still happens in today's world. Yeah, I think the the attractiveness is if you start having sprints every week or two, it's nice to be able to see incremental and rapid change and uh, change that color to this, do this differently. Why don't we add a field to do this? Being able to respond to that sort of real life you know, input from the business users and the customers is great, but it is hard to have, wrap your head around. Um, I don't know how many iterations it's going to be exactly in order to get all of your stories done. And then you might be tempted to go agile and say, well, if I were to project out, then I think you've probably got 15 sprints in order to, you know, get to the end of this. And it's roughly X hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars or whatever. Yeah. So the fortunate thing that we did have, it was kind of viewed as an experimental project to go agile. Uh, so it was their first kind of dipping the toe into the water. Um, it actually transpired that we got the project done in six months, which was far quicker than they expected. And it also was done far cheaper than they expected. Um, so those were good encouragers to to the sea level management. And on the basis that yes, this is this is something that we can look at more closely now in some other areas because it was regarded as a great success. That definitely helps. Certainly does. Yeah. Do you have um, a sprint length that you like to see a cadence in a lot of the projects you do? Is it one week, two weeks, three weeks? So I was. Uh, I've been in two companies now that do that were doing Scrum, and I found that a two week sprint was probably the most optimal. It gives you enough time to get a meaningful amount of work produced, but it doesn't overbear the team with like a three or four week. I've seen places do four week sprints. And to me, that just feels too long. It's like it's languishing in that third and fourth week. More recently, uh, the project I've been working on is Kanban. So we, we don't have any sprints. And I find that that is the best. If you can pull that off, it, it's the sweet spot of doing Scrum, basically, without the, without the time box. Could you dive in a little bit there? Because I, I, I mentioned on the first pod, I'm an operations management major. We studied Toyota and total quality management and Kanban. But for those who don't know Kanban, especially in this context, could you dive in a little bit, please? Sure. So, so Kanban is um, it's all about um, working progress. You can have like an, in our particular Kanban process, we have five, five columns. So we have a grooming column, which is our, where we pull work in. And then we have an in progress. Actually, we have a holding pen, which is work that's ready for development. And that's something that's acceptable in Kanban. And then you have your work in progress and you're done. So some people might want to split out work in progress and QA. Uh, we've actually integrated that all into one. But in each one of those sections, we have a limit of number of items that we're working on at at any one time. 
And the beauty of that is, is that when your work in progress starts to get near to the uh, boundary, it, it tells product that they're either, tr- they're either expecting too much throughput for the amount of capacity that they have, or it's more complex than what they anticipated. And it allows you to adjust accordingly. You can either bring your threshold down and say, no, we're only going to work on five items instead of seven, and that way we can keep our throughput going without getting blocked up in that one particular column, or we can add more capability and more resources and still bring through that larger volume. So for me, it, it's really about focusing on what you're working on now. You know, we, we do have a, a backlog in the traditional sense, but that's not part of our, our Kanban board. That's managed externally. We pull from the top of that backlog into grooming, and that's when the, we, when it, when the clock starts ticking of, of your throughput time, how long does it take to get from grooming to done? And that's what, that's what our metrics are. And then we have a second metric, which is cycle time, and that's how quickly something gets from going in progress, in other words, being worked on, for the time it's completed. So that's how we measure our efficiency. It's lead time and cycle time. Underserved is fortunate to be sponsored by Syrinx, the developer-founded, developer-run software consulting company. Syrinx provides bolt-on software development capacity to accelerate your software projects. Syrinx works with your team and your methodology, on-site or off-site, to deliver on-time and on-budget. They work in any technology stack. React, Angular, Java, .NET, Python, front-end, back-end, NoSQL, MySQL, any SQL you can come up with, they have experts. You need architects, developers, QA folks, project managers, analysts, data scientists. Syrinx can help everywhere in the software development lifecycle anywhere in the United States. Syrinx also does complete outsourced software project development if you need a turnkey end-to-end solution or if you just need an individual resource to fill a development gap. With 100% of their resources onshore and a 20-year track record of success, you can trust Syrinx to get it right the first time. You can reach them today at syrinx.com or 888-579-7469. That is 888-5-SYRINX. Expand your software development bandwidth at syrinx.com. Now, I want to rewind a little bit because you touched on the difficulty in managing remote development teams. Yes. I just had lunch the other day with a VP of development from a one of the larger software development shops here in the Boston area. And he mentioned that as one of their challenges, you know, like in order to be competitive with other employers and hot skill sets, uh, a lot of folks are saying, okay, yes, you can work fully remote or maybe only come in two or three days a week and getting people, especially over the summer to line up in the days that they're in the office together to collaborate and more importantly, getting them to collaborate when they're all remote and stay on the same page. What are the tips and tricks you've seen that people use well? And what are some things you would say you want to avoid? Okay, so the collaboration piece of this is key, even with people remote. Um, Time zones does become a problem um, when you're trying to get people to collaborate at the same time. We're fortunate on our team that our overseas resources have shifted their workday to align with the U.S. time zone as much as possible. But one of the things that we found in terms of tips and tricks for that is that when we do our team grooming sessions, the entire team is there. 
So we, we pick a time where we can get everybody there and then everybody participates in the grooming of that story as it comes from the grooming column into the ready for development column. That way, whoever ends up picking up a given story has already been exposed to, you know, the, how the acceptance criteria came about. Um, we use a technique called example mapping during grooming. And by that, it's basically, let's say, um, you know, it's a, it's a story for login and there's a specific criteria for passwords. We will literally come up with hard examples of what's an acceptable password what isn't, what are the rules. And by doing that, it exposes shortfalls in the story. The other, the other thing that, uh, that I think is important building on from that team knowledge when we go through grooming is that once stuff gets into in progress and if something's starting to sit in progress for too long, so we, we have our JIRA board configured that if any one item is in that column for more than three days, it changes color. That's an alert to the other developers to say, okay, someone's struggling on this. Uh, and whether they're in the office or whether they're remote, they will find a way to be able to either through email or through Slack to, to collaborate on what is the challenge on this one particular card that's holding it in development for longer than what we want it there for. So for me, I would say the key thing is to keep that collaboration alive. And um, as much as you can with the time zone limitations, try to find mechanisms where you can keep that conversation going. Yeah, I definitely also heard in there eliminating guesswork, it sounds like, by yes. trying to do that um, jam session, if you will, uh, yes. during the grooming. Yep. Now, when you said have everyone there physically or no. online or online through, we use WebEx, but any type of uh, online um, conferencing tool. The other key thing that we do is a meeting called a Three Amigos meeting. So as soon as a developer picks up a story from the um, ready for development, they will schedule uh, uh, another collaboration session, and that will involve somebody from QA somebody from the business, and somebody from development. Often it's actually three to five people, uh, but we call it three amigos to represent those three core interests. And during that session, we will actually go through and, and, and plan out what the acceptance tests are going to be to satisfy the ACs on that story. So again, once the developer is actually you know, in his space of coding, he already has a really good idea of what the expectation is for for testing and what needs to pass before it goes over to exploratory. Now you mentioned a couple of tools as well. Uh, you said Jira and uh, particularly doing some automated color changes of tasks. Yeah. And you mentioned Slack. Is there anything else you like to use to keep people on the same page intraday? Like I've heard of some people using Google Hangouts and other things to kind of keep a more hey, we're all in the same virtual place together feeling? So in, in the last organization I was at, we tried using Hangouts. Unfortunately, I think that the platform itself was either not mature enough and we found that there was hiccups with audio and video. Um, we're using WebEx where we are now. So while it's probably a little more formal in terms of still scheduled meeting, it's not as free form, the sound quality and the video capability I feel trumps that kind of more informal type of thing. 
Um, the other tool that we use regularly as part of our process uh, is is a tool called Miro, which is a storyboarding, story mapping tool. We use that extensively for uh, our backlog planning. So I, I mentioned that we have a backlog that's separate from our Kanban board. As features come along in the product roadmap, we'll use the story mapping technique to figure out, okay, what are the big chunks of work that will be represented by an epic? And what are some of the stories that are going to be represented in, in that epic? And it's a visual tool and it's very lightweight. So if things change and priorities change, it really doesn't affect the amount of effort that you have to put in to keep that alive. But because it's very visual, you immediately start to see, okay, this, this epic is starting to get bloated now. We might need to think about breaking it down into smaller chunks. Uh, same, similar with stories as we start to add the ACs in. This is before any of this stuff even gets into JIRA. So we only bring stuff into JIRA when it's probably 90% sure that we're going to be developing that story. So our lead time in, in our JIRA backlog is maybe 60 days. Everything else is is visual at that point. Now, to implement the Kanban board, do you have something online like a Trello or offline like sticky notes? Um, Jira has a built-in capability for Kanban. Yep. So it uh, and you can you can on the same project you can have a Kanban view or you can have a Scrum view of the same set of cards. Um, so you can you know you can transition from one to the other depending on how well the team is is working. Are there any uh, favorite websites or resources for Agile, especially if an organization is just getting started in it? I would say Agile NX, of course. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about that? Um, so Agile NX is a site that we put together to promote um, Syrinx's uh, Agile practice. It's still in its early stages, but uh, the, the, the point of it is to really show how we're approaching Agile practice from a different perspective than than some of the other organizations that are out there. I would say go along, take a visit, read some of our posts that we have there, and give us some feedback. Have you seen any challenges that happen over and over when people are implementing Agile or mistakes that you see client after client? Yes. Commitment to the Agile mindset, I think, is probably the biggest challenge coming down from C-level, even down to team members, um, understanding that the team is self-governing and, and has a responsibility for itself and a responsibility for the person next to you, whether that's a developer or a QA person or the product owner, you're in it together and you have to have that commitment to, to succeed together. And to me, you know, take away all of the you know, documentation and um, process if you don't have that mindset commitment, then you're probably not going to succeed. And the one that I've seen quite a few times is getting folks that come from a traditional waterfallish product environment, especially like especially when there's dates involved. You yeah. Know, when when I was at Monster, it was always we got to have this done for the Super Bowl ad. Yeah. And they they start with the date, they cram a bunch of stuff in, and you got to figure out how to get it done in that length of time. How do you, um, especially as an outside consultant, help an organization start changing their thinking to a more agile model? 
So there's certainly things, as you mentioned, that do have a hard date. You have to deliver by that date. Delivering your Super Bowl at the next day is not really going to cut the mustard. So it's really understanding what is the scope that needs to be accomplished and making sure that you have a realistic set of resources to be able to meet that goal. And then really being able to break the deliverable down into small enough parts so that you can achieve that incremental delivery and and see the incremental delivery. And that in and of itself is a motivator to get done by the date. We recently went live with our product in April, uh, April of this year. And by January of this year, I I was having concerns that we were going to make it. But the team was so committed and so invested that we pulled it off. We didn't cut any corners. We just got our heads down because the work had been broken down sufficiently that we knew um, how many pieces that we had left. We did do something uh, which is probably a, a little uncharacteristic, and that was we put the best minds on certain pieces of the project that needed to get done to sp- speed up the production and the delivery, uh, whereas normally it would be you know first in, first out, picking off the top. If you're a developer, you finish your card, you pick up the next one. We actually made a decision that we would start to steer work off into into more experienced developers that were either you know API and more experience in APIs or data or whatever it was. And that actually did help us to meet that delivery date. Would you say there's any challenges working with build and release or QA teams and making them part of an agile process? So as I mentioned earlier on, we decided that we would make QA an integral part of our in progress. So there's no throwing over the wall. The, the, um, our, our QA staff are basically seasoned programmers. So they can be there in the code. They can see what's going on and they're involved. They have a, uh, they have a work task on that story. So they're, they're in with the nuts and bolts. But um, definitely in my previous uh, role, we had a separate team in another location that did the QA, and that was always a bottleneck struggle. So stuff was coming out of development, going into QA. There was, you know, issues and stuff would have, constantly go backwards and forwards. In the model that we have now, we've completely eliminated all of that backwards and forwards because it doesn't go to acceptance until it's ready. And, you know, because we break the units of work down, we aim for three to five days as 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 our uh, optimal goal for in progress. And as I mentioned before, if something's struggling, it's been in there for three days already, then we get extra eyeballs on it. Say, so how can we move this forwards? All right, changing gears. I know you have an appointment coming up, so we'll go rapid fire. Do you okay. have a favorite app? Are you an Apple or Android guy? And if so, what's your favorite app? Uh, I'm an Android guy. Um, yeah, right on, brother. <laughs> Uh, even though with my history of Apple and I use a Mac every day, but I have never gotten into the iOS thing. For some reason, it doesn't align with my mind. Uh, my favorite app, um, that's a tough one. Just think of one that I couldn't live without. It could be personal, work-related. For me, I've been uh, quite a shill for Evernote. That's actually interesting. I've been hardcore Evernote, but I'm gradually shifting to OneNote because of its integration with the whole Microsoft walled garden. I think probably on my phone, Messenger. I, I think if Messenger went away, I know it's probably one of the 
things that's like really expected out of the gate, but it's something that I use probably five, six, ten times a day. Keeps me in touch with business people, friends, family. So it's probably my favorite app just from that community and communication point of view. Are you a social media maven or you dip your toe in the water and where do you where do you hang out there? Um, so I, I'm limited. So I, I do have a Facebook account, um, but I use that combination for business and personal. So I have some business pages. Agile NX, of course, has a business presence there. I have Twitter accounts, but I, I really only use those to drive traffic. So I'm not a tweeter per se. Um, and then LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn has come such a long way as a, as an important tool for networking and and managing uh, business colleagues and acquaintances and new business opportunity. Definitely agree. Uh, we probably couldn't live without it here. Any other things you want to mention before we sign off or words to the wise? Words to the wise. Um, Agile is, as I mentioned, it's, it's a mindset and you have to be committed. I'm 100% committed. I'm very passionate about it. And I like to think that my passion for Agile rubs off on people around me. Um, I enjoy working with people that have that same mindset. And um, hopefully I'll get an opportunity to work with some of you that are listening. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Glenn. I'm sure we'll end up talking to you again soon. And we appreciate you being on Underserved. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.